asked you in the study, and I'm going to ask you again this morning, if you were to pick a word, one word that you want to be remembered for after your life on this earth is over, what word would you want people to think of you using that word? Would it be faithful, uh, kind, giving, loving? Well, this week we covered a lot of material in these chapters, uh, a lot of tedious material as we looked at boundaries and deeds and land. And uh, chapters 13 to 21, there was a lot in there. But as we read those chapters What stood out to me were the two men, Caleb and Joshua, and especially Caleb. And it was said three times of Caleb in chapter 14, it said that he followed the Lord God fully. Some translations say wholeheartedly. That's in verses 8, verse 9, verse 14. Caleb followed the Lord God fully. And even though that wasn't specifically said of Joshua, I think it's pretty evident that that also characterizes the life of Joshua, that they both followed God wholeheartedly. So that would be the one word I would use for them, would be wholehearted, because they were wholeheartedly devoted to God. They followed him fully. And that's the challenge that I would give us this week from this lesson is that we would follow the Lord wholeheartedly. But what does that look like for us? And how do we do that? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to give three principles from these chapters that would help us follow the Lord wholeheartedly. So let's jump in with this. The first principle would be we need to be committed to God's best. Don't settle for less than what God wants for you. And we see that in chapter 13. We begin chapter 13 with verse 1. says, Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years. And every time I read that, I'm like, God, I don't need you to tell me that I'm old. I don't know why Joshua, uh, how he responded, but I would have said, I know I'm old, okay? But he's, he reminded them, you are old, you're advanced in age, you're v- and very much of the land remains to be possessed. And what's going on here is that the major battles had been won. They had defeated the kings, but they still had not divided the land. They hadn't gone and started to live in the land. They had just defeated the the kings. And so now the last part of Joshua's commission from God was, now you need to divide the land and you all need to go and occupy the land that I promised you. And so in verse 7, he tells Joshua, now a portion for an inheritance, a portion this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half tribe of Manasseh. And you remember that the other two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they had already said, hey, we want the land east of the Jordan. And that comes the, the, with that comes the question, 
Did they settle for less than God's best? By saying, you know what? This is good enough for us. This is all we need. And I asked that question in your homework. Was it a wise decision for them to take the land east of the Jordan instead of Canaan, which is the land that God had promised them? And my feelings are, I don't think it was wise. I think it was wrong. I think it was a mistake for them to do that because God had promised them this land, not this land. But they saw good land and thought, we'll settle for this. We don't need to wait and get God's best. I think they saw something that looked good and they chose to settle for less than God's best. It wasn't the land that God had intended for them to enjoy. But I think another reason why it wasn't a good choice is because history would say it's not a good choice because they had no natural boundaries on that side of the Jordan. They There was no protection on the east of them, and they were constantly exposed to armies that were invading them. They weren't protected. And when the king of Assyria looked towards Canaan, those two and a half tribes were the first tribes that were carried into captivity by the Assyrian armies. They had no protection. And then just a third reason why I don't think it was wise is that they would lose a sense of unity with their brothers because they weren't even in the same land. They were divided by this river. And and there's that sense of, you know, are we really one or not? Are we here and y'all are there? I don't think they chose God's best. They settled for something good instead of God's best. But they weren't the only ones who settled for less than God's best. I think the other nine and a half tribes did too. And let me explain why. Um, They settled in the promised land, yes. They took the land that God wanted them to have. But they didn't drive out all the inhabitants that God had commanded them to drive out. They sort of partially obeyed. They They took the land, but you will read in these chapters to come, they they did not drive out the Jebusites. They did not drive out the Canaanites. They did not drive out. They settled for less than God's best in that they were thinking, it's okay. It's just some people. We'll let them live here. That was not God's plan for them. And so I think they settled for less than than God's best. Maybe they were just tired and thought, you know what, this is good enough. We've driven out enough people. Let's just stop. But we don't need to settle for less than God's best. Those people they left would end up being a contaminating presence for them the rest, well, even until today. The two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan settled for what was good. The tribes on the west side of the Jordan settled for what was easiest. We don't want to fight and push those people out. But neither one was God's best for them. They stopped short of 
embracing what God had planned for them. If we're going to wholeheartedly follow God, we have to be committed to God's best. And that's where we have to ask ourselves, am I settling for God's less than God's best? Do we get impatient with God because he's not giving us what we want quick enough or we're just tired and we say, this is good enough. You know what? I'll just do this. You know, I have friends who wanted to get married so badly in their 20s that they just married the wrong guy. And we knew it. They knew it. And, you know, they'd come and talk to me and say, Cricket, I, I made a mistake. I married the wrong man. And she would explain, or they would explain, this is a number of people would say, you know, I wanted to get married so bad, and this guy was good. So why not, you know? She settled, they settled for less than God's best, and it didn't end well. They all ended in divorce, or one that's just in a horrible marriage. Don't settle for less than God's best because you don't want to trust him in his timing to give you his best. And God's best is not always the easiest path. And it's not always the quickest path. But he knows what he's doing. And I think we've all learned that the good is sometimes the worst enemy of the best. We see something good And we think, okay, that's enough. But that may not be all that God wants you to have if you would just wait. So if you want to follow the Lord God wholeheartedly, be committed to God's best. Don't settle for less. The second principle is to be confident in God's power. And chapters 14 to 19 cover the distribution of the land among the nine and a half tribes. And this section begins with the land given to Caleb, and it ends with Joshua getting his land, which wasn't much. They kind of bookend all the the tribes getting their lands. And in chapter 14, before the tribes drew lots for their land, Caleb approached Joshua with a request. He wanted the land that they had spied out 45 years earlier. And, jo- and Caleb is 85 years old now. And he might, if I had been 85 years old, I probably would have said, Joshua, could you just give me a nice little plot by the lake? And I don't need much. Maybe I'll have a garden, sit on my back porch, have tea with my neighbors. Just give me a nice, quiet place. That's what I would have done, but he did not do that. Caleb wasn't ready to sit on the sidelines. And instead of asking for something easy, he requested that he be given that same section of land that had struck fear in the 10 spies 45 years earlier. He was ready for one more battle. When he was 40 years old and he saw those giants in that land, he had confidence in God's power to take that land and to defeat those giants. The people didn't. 
But he, had, he believed in God's power to do it, but he had to wait. And here, now that he's 85, he wants the opportunity to do what he couldn't do 45 years earlier. He wants the opportunity to defeat those giants and to see God's power at work. He was still confident in the power of God, and he knew that his God could take those enemies down. He could take those giants out. He could destroy those fortified cities. Caleb didn't minimize the problems, the giants, but he magnified his God. And that's what we need to do. Don't minimize the giants and say, oh, it's nothing to it. Instead, magnify the power of our God. My God is big enough to do anything. And that's what Caleb did. Caleb had faith in the power of God. Do we? How confident are we that our God can do anything, the impossible? You know, I was convicted of this this past Friday. I was uh, working on the lecture, but I spent most of Friday trying to find flights for us to Nepal. And it wasn't going well, and the prices were sky high, and the length of flying time was 50 hours. And, you know, and, and I just thought by Friday out, and every time I tried to book us on something that looked decent, I would go through all the things I was typing in, the names, the passport numbers, the billing information, the seat assignments, and then I'd click book, and it would say, sorry, your flights to Kathmandu just sold out. And it did that on Travelocity, on Expedia, on Orbitz, on Kayak, and I finally just said, God, this is not going to happen. This is, I don't, there's just not going to happen. And then it's like a little voice was like, so do you not think I have the power to do the impossible? I was convicted because in my life, it's easy for me to say, hey, you need to believe God can do it. But when I'm dealing with something that seems impossible, I'm like, God, there is no way and I'm done with this. But if we're going to follow God wholeheartedly, we've got to be confident in his power. And not just say it, but live it out. Believe it. So I confessed, and um, I turned it over to a travel agent Friday night. (laughs) And I let he and God work it out. so, um. So do we believe that God is going to come through for us when a situation seems impossible? He can, but do we believe that? Do we step out even of our comfort zone and ask him to do the impossible? So if we want to follow God wholeheartedly, first, we've got to be committed to his best. Second, we've got to be confident in his power. And third, we need to be content with his plan. Specifically, be content with God's plan for you. Well, now that Caleb's territory was settled, they begin distributing the land to the nine and a half tribes in Canaan. And the method that God chose to do that was by drawing lots. 
And every tribe would receive territory, and it was proportionate to their size. Big tribes got a lot of land. Small tribes got less land. And the casting of lots simply determined where they would be, the location of each tribe. But it wasn't random, because God was sovereignly orchestrating the drawing of those lots and where each tribe would be in the land of Canaan. But as you read this week, not every tribe was happy with their lot that they drew. They weren't content with God's choice for them. You, you looked at Joshua 17 and verses 14 to 18. You read about Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and how they were not content with the land that they received. They didn't think it was enough. You know, a lot of scholars say they, they had the choicest land, some of the best land. <clears throat> but these two tribes were not content with what was given to them. In their opinion, they said, hey, it's not enough. And so they asked Joshua, give us more land. This isn't enough for us. And apparently they were just counting the part of the land that was easily accessible. They weren't thinking and looking at the, the hill country with all the forest or the land where all the Canaanites still lived. They wanted easy they disregarded those areas. They did not want to have to work for their land. They wanted their hand, land handed to them. And their attitude was in sharp contrast to the attitude of, of Caleb, who was willing to fight those giants, and even Joshua, who was like, I'll just wait to the end, and this is all I want. But notice how Joshua handled them. He didn't give in to their complaining. And he said in verse 15, if you're a numerous people, if you've got this many people, then you go up and you go to that forest and you clear out the land. And then you'll have plenty of land. And you kill those Canaanites and you'll have plenty of land. And they, they still complained, it's not enough for us. And the Canaanites have iron chariots. How are we supposed to defeat them? But Joshua stood firm and at the same time he encouraged them. And he said, you're a numerous people. You've got plenty of people. You have great power. You shall not have one lot only, but the hill country shall be yours. Now, he's not saying he's going to give them another lot. He's just saying, you go up, you clear out that forest land, you'll have plenty of land. So Ephraim and Manasseh were not happy with their lots. They didn't think it was fair. And then in chapters 18 and 19, the rest of the land was divided among the other tribes, and scholars say that probably the tribe that got the most least desirable portion was Dan. And I've been to Dan, and I think Dan's beautiful, but they said that was probably the, the least desirable location, and yet Dan never complained that we know of. It's not written that they ever complained about what God gave them. And so that's the question for us. Are we content with our lot in life? Are we content with the blueprint that God has drawn out for our lives? You know, some of us are single. Can we be content with where God has us, whether we're single, never married, whether we're widowed, whether we're divorced? 
Can we trust God's hand in his timing of everything? Some want children. Some want to be married, like I shared about my other friends. Um, Maybe there's some that you feel like your life is harder than somebody else's life. Or we look at other people's lives and we compare and we say, why can't I have her husband? You know, why can't I have her home, that kind of money? Why can't my kids be angels like hers instead of the little holy terrors that mine are? You know, why do I have the problem children or the illnesses? Why? Why does she have life so easy? Why do I have to work and she gets to stay at home? Can we be content with the lot that God has given us, that he has sovereignly drawn out for each of us? You know, I think we've all had times that we've expressed dissatisfaction with what God has given us in life. I have. But God wants us to be content with his choices, his plan, and trust him. And the way that we learn contentment is not by complaining or comparing. The way we learn contentment is by embracing the sovereignty of God and his love for us and trusting that God knows what he's doing and that this is his purpose for me for you. So Caleb and Joshua followed the Lord God wholeheartedly. Would people describe you as somebody who follows God wholeheartedly? Would they describe you as a Caleb or a Joshua? Or would they describe you as an Ephraim or Manasseh? Kind of complaining, whining about how hard things are. If we want to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, like Joshua and Caleb, three things need to be true in our lives. We need to be committed to God's best. We need to be confident in his power. We need to be content with his plan. I want to close by sharing uh, a little bit about somebody in my life that is a role model, that is a great example for me. My mom... Uh, would have been 103 years old. And I have a picture. It's not real clear, but this she was probably 96 here and just always had a smile on her face. For those of you who knew my mom, you know that smile. She would have been 103 this past Sunday. And if I were going to describe my mom in one word, or actually two words, I would describe her with as wholehearted devotion. My mom followed the Lord fully, but my mom did not have an easy lot in life. Her life was not easy at all. Um, She was one of eight kids in her family, and two of her siblings died as babies. She was the oldest daughter, the second oldest of all the kids, and so as a child, she had to take care of all the other kids, and she had to help Mama with all the chores, and they lived on a farm. My, my grandfather was a farmer, and she had to, you know, go get the eggs out of the hen house and go feed the cows and go. And, and Mom said, you know, I didn't have much of a childhood. I, I don't know what it meant to go play with friends. 
I was always having to be responsible for people. But that's what God wanted me to do. And it's okay. Um, she married my dad in 1942 in June. And then that December, my daddy went to Germany to fight in World War II. And mom had her first son while daddy was still in Germany. And it was hard. Those years were hard. And then when my dad returned, the war moved him to drink. And my dad became an alcoholic. And that made their marriage very difficult. Both of my brothers, she had another little son while daddy was in the war also, but both of them had health issues as babies. She was in and out of the hospital with them all the time by herself. She had a hard life. And then at the age of 52, my dad died, and she was 52, he was 58. And he collapsed one morning there at the home, at the house I was there. And mom was devastated that she lost her husband when she was only 52 years old. Now what do I do? But she trusted the Lord and looked to God to be her, her helper, her husband. She never wanted to remarry. She grew stronger in the Lord year after year. And the thing that stands out to mom is that I never heard her complain about her life. She always said, God knows what he's doing with me. And I trust him. She never expressed anger, at least that we ever saw. Only a dependence on God. And so my mom was an example of somebody who wholeheartedly followed God until the day he took her home. She was faithful to the end. And I want to be like her. And I'm sure all of us have people in our lives that we can think of that have set examples for us and that are role models. And I, I would ask us to consider, are we a role model to those younger generations coming after us? Are we living life in such a way that the younger generations would look at us and go, I want to be like her, a Joshuette, you know, a Calebette. Or are we turning people away by the way we live? Again, I ask you to think about what is that one word or two words that you want people to remember you by when you're long gone on this earth? Are you following the Lord wholeheartedly? If not, what do you need to change? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Joshua. It's just filled with so many practical applications. And Lord, I pray that every woman in this room would want to walk wholeheartedly with you until the day you take her home. And I pray, Lord, you'd show us what we need to do in order to do that if we're not already. And I pray, Father, that we would want to trust you, that we would trust you regardless of what's going on in our lives, regardless of the plan that you have mapped out for us. Father, work in our hearts. 
I pray we wouldn't take these studies and just file them away, but we continue to let you work in us. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.